Welcome to the Brookwood Life of the Mind podcast, episode two. I'm Sherry Walsh, assistant head of school. As I mentioned in episode one, this podcast comes out of my desire to keep what we love, teaching, and what we do intellectually front and center in our professional lives in a time when our work is dominated by COVID-related logistics. It's also important to make clear a little more what we do in a liberal arts school in a time when the educational culture, uh, when commonalities in society are often downplayed in order to valorize more contemporary issues. Brookwood gives its students a strong education in Western civilization with the idea that a Brookwood girl can use it as a foundation to learn about anything and everything. The Brookwood teacher is always thinking about how better to foster the discussions that will lead students to discover what they can do and know, but the content is predicated on the belief that the classics tell us who we are and give us room to have insights and to move the culture forward in humane and unifying ways. Finally, the Christian culture offers us access to the good, the true, and the beautiful in ways that are compelling and inspiring. Today, I'm pleased to be here with Rich McPherson, the head of Brookwood School and the president of Avalon and Brookwood Schools. Rich teaches math at Brookwood, but everyone who knows him knows his love for the natural world, for liter literature generally, and for poetry specifically, for the idea and practice of pilgrimage, and most centrally, of the works of G.K. Chesterton, which is what we're here to talk about today, with special emphasis on the everlasting man. Rich is a person curious about people and about ideas. In schools, we all know that maintaining that curiosity and feeding it is what keeps us as teachers alive in the classroom, and Rich has this curiosity in abundance. My goal in this conversation is to provide the newcomer with an introduction to Chesterton and to find out too how his way of thinking can infuse our contemporary lived Christianity in a way that's not wagon circling or fearful, but that's exuberant and confident while also being grounded. Our conversation will focus on the everlasting man, but I'm sure that it will meander. So, hi Rich. Hello, thanks for having me. <laughs> sure, I'm glad you're here <laughs> in your school. Um, let's begin with a little background. Uh, we know that you're um, proud to have been educated at Harvard, um, and it's my understanding that your relationship to Chesterton, though, is a little bit separate from that, and it's an interest that developed after college. Yeah, I had never heard of Chesterton, and um, I was working as an actuary in New York City. I was working for Metropolitan Life. I do love math, and it's, it's my first love. But anyway, I was uh, walking through uh, New York City. I stopped at this church called St. Francis of Assisi. And they had a bookstore there. And I found a book called In Soft Garments by Ronald Knox. Now, someone gave me that book my freshman year at Harvard. It was the, really the first solid religious book I ever read. And I loved it. I, I mean, I loved it. I gave the book back, never saw it again. But there in this bookstore, a dusty copy of In Soft Garments. And I guess I wasn't much of, it was, it's a book of, uh, that Ronald Knox, who was a convert to Catholicism, he was actually an Anglican priest, converted in the, the teens, 1917 or around there. And then he was at Oxford for 13 years and he gave these meditations to the Catholics at Oxford. They were just allowed to be, go to school again there. Anyway, it was really, really a strong book. It really strengthened my faith. And so uh, I loved it. I went home, uh, it was 1984, Washington weekend, and I was visiting my sister Janice and her husband John, and I told them about this book, Ronald Knox, and he really likes Ronald Knox. He said, but you know what you would like? You would like Chesterton. I said, who? Gilbert Keith Chesterton, you'd like him. I said, oh yeah, what should I read? And he said, The Everlasting Man, I think you'd like that. And anyway, I went back to MetLife, I went back to New York, MetLife, 
Tuesday morning because Monday was off, and they have a beautiful library there. And then in the library, there's The Everlasting Man by Chesterton. And I remember opening it. It was Tuesday morning and just nice. like, wow, this is, this, is, this is something I've never read before. Let me just read the first few words that I, I, I still remember reading, um, which is, it, it's, 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 and his introduction, the plan of this book. There are two ways of getting home, and one of them is to stay there. The other is to walk around the whole world till we come back to the same place. And I tried to trace such a journey in a story I once wrote. It is, however, a relief to turn from that topic to another story that I never wrote. Like every book I never wrote, it is by far the best book I have ever written. It is only too probable that I shall never write it. So I will use it symbolically here, for it was a symbol of the same truth. And so I had never read anything like that. In fact, I wasn't that big of a reader. I read. I remember reading, I read... Burr by Gore Vidal, uh, I read The Prince by Machiavelli, I was trying to get educated living in New York, and uh, Cyrano de Bergerac, that was, which is my favorite play. But Everlasting Man was just, was incredible for me, and I couldn't put it down. I really, I read it right through. Well, like Cyrano, um, The Everlasting Man has a lot of um, inversions, a lot of, um, it's, it's, you think it's this, but it's that, a mm -hmm. lot of, um, antithesis and um, oxymoron and paradox. Um, and that verbal play, like you see in Rostand, is um, is something that I think dominates the style of the book. I was going to try to control myself and not talk about the style of the book so much. <laughs> but um, but well, I think but, that, that's, that seems to be like, a, that maybe was attractive. It was attractive to me. But I think, you know, I look back and said, why did I like it so much? And I remember that when I went to Harvard, I went uh, 1975. Two of the books we had to read before going into Harvard and they had uh, was uh, one was Darwin's Origin of Species, and the other was uh, Henry David Thoreau on Walden's Pond. I don't think I read either of them. But <laughs> anyway, because I know the first week the Darwin lecture was on the night Boston College was playing Texas in football, and I watched that instead. But my whole time at Harvard, I was. Very, there were very few Catholics, so the people who were Catholics weren't practicing the faith, and they were all Darwinist. Hmm. And there was one thing I wasn't. I wasn't a Darwinist. And I was a Catholic, and I was pretty devout. I wasn't as formed as I look back as I should have been, uh, although. And so I think when you started the book and you're talking about Darwin and man, and sure. I think that that's what got me too. But then a sense of humor throughout the book, I just... I think it's terrific. Yeah. So when you say you were not a Darwinist, do you mean like a social Darwinist or do you mean... Um... I mean a scientist Darwinist. I've always had problems with evolution as the way it was taught because I think it, it's mainly taught uh, eliminating God. That's, I, I think Darwin was an atheist at the end of his life anyway. But I still remember being in the room with like 10 other guys and me arguing about, you know, evolution and what it was. And just being a math guy, I said, geez, the numbers just don't add up. How is that possible for it to happen accidentally? The world is too, too complex anyway. So, I mean, that's what Chesterton does, right? I mean, he talks about how man um, infers a designer mm -hmm. and then from there... Um, develops religion, right? I mean, so yeah. you have this idea, this, this inference of the, of the designer. I think that, that Chesterton is talking um, about, the, I mean, the business about evolution at the beginning, and it might just be my, um, 
you know, my particular reading here in the 21st century, but it read to me like his objection was to seeing all processes through a kind of Darwinist lens as opposed to uh, like a particular objection to like evolution as an idea. Yeah, but, he, he says that could exist. You know, I mean, I'm not, he's not, he wasn't going against the theory, but what he does is he, he at the start of the book, he treats man as an animal, just like it's an, an, an any other animal. And then he sees what an extraordinary animal it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a difference of degree, it's a difference in, of kind. Right. And uh, he, he does it brilliantly. I mean, I, I, I think when I read it, I said, oh man, I would like to have read this before I uh, yeah. <laughs> went to Harvard, but yeah. I probably wasn't ready. Yeah, I often wonder, like, if I, when I was in 11th grade, if my 11th grade English teacher had handed me Flannery O'Connor instead of Sylvia Plath, yeah. how my life would have been different. You know, I think it's that same kind of sort of yeah. like, here's a crossroads, and it would have been interesting to have followed path A at yeah. a certain time. But I think it's interesting, too, how Chesterton um, begins in the cave, right? And so you have this idea of, um, of art in the cave, and the idea that, um, that primitive man wasn't necessarily um, a brute, Right, um, and that he begins a second part also with the cave, and so thinking of the cave as the um, as the stable, mm-hmm. and so beginning um, both of those sections with with that yeah. idea. It's a nice symmetry, but I and think beautiful. it's also um, I think it's also telling. Mm-hmm. Well, his famous line is "Art is the signature of man." Too, mm-hmm. I mean that's one thing he said. That's why I like going down to the cave. He talks about going down with a priest and a boy. Yeah, because when you see something the first time, you see it differently. Mm-hmm. I remember his description of the, the horse, seeing a horse the first time. Um, I, I like that. Uh, let me just read that part. Because it made you look at things differently. I, I, I don't, I, it, it, Chesterton fills you with wonder. I mean, he is filled with wonder, and he fills you with wonder when you read. And he talks about if you see, a, sometimes you get stale and you have to, sort of be outside or look at something differently in order to uh, to see something for the first time. So he describes a seeing a horse. That's a tough word for a Bostonian mm-hmm. to say. Out of some dark forest under some ancient dawn, there must come towards us with lumbering yet dancing motions one of the very queerest of the prehistoric creatures. We must see for the first time the strangely small head set on a neck not only longer but thicker than itself as the face of a gargoyle is thrust out upon a gutter spout, the one disproportionate crest of hair running along the ridge of that heavy neck like a beard in the wrong place, the feet each like a solid club of horn, alone amid the feet of so many cattle, and then so that the true fear is to be found in showing not the cloven but the uncloven hoof. I mean, just, yeah, and so I started looking at things differently after that. I mean, I remember looking at trees differently. In orthodoxy, mm-hmm. he talks about looking at things upside down. So instead of the trees being in the ground, pretend they're hanging from the ceiling and uh, just looking at things totally differently after reading this book. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, um, again, like O'Connor, there's the desire to um, defamiliarize what's what we become complacent about and mm-hmm. I think that that is something from and so this book is from 1925 I think that is something that really affects the um, the sort of Catholic Renaissance of writers in the middle of the 20th century that idea of um, needing to defamiliarize what's become um, sort of sluggish or torpid and um, 
and to to make you see it in a new way. I mean, different different writers have taken different approaches to that, mm-hmm. uh, but Chesterton's approach seems to be um, to kind of show it to you from a different angle, to give you a different vantage to some of... Um, well, even later in the book, he talks about man, and he comes from out of space looking at man. You know, he wouldn't even go from the old hackneyed way of, of doing something. I mean, he looked like someone coming out of space and looking and discovering man who hadn't discovered himself or whatever the right, line was. But right. it was, So he always looked at things. You know, so the way, you know, his humor, though, and the way he just describe things like he talks about evolution if something just that 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 they kind of make things go slower instead of faster or it's it's uncanny if you someone turned from a guy into a pig over a you know slowly would be just as eerie as it you know right as quickly right so, might as well be as, as swift yeah yeah as swift slow, and, uh, yeah and that's one of the things they always like there's a long time and anything can happen a long time but no not anything can happen a long time over a long time that that has happened uh, with evolution or science so mm-hmm. yeah yeah so reading Chesterton then in 1984 um, discovering that um, this was a different way of looking at the world um, in a way that um, confirmed what you thought so you had questions about Darwinism and um, and Chesterton um, addressed sort of met you there and um, and um, approached approached these ideas from um it it made them fresh made them new in a way yeah um and so then from there this became you wanted more right i wanted more i mean uh i mean it wasn't just the the darwinism it was his, his his defending the faith and you know his even reading the gospel for the first time i had read the gospel i had read through the gospel the new testament and some of the old testament but he says to you know read it as for the first time. We've all heard these right. things, and so so I did. I went back and read it for the first time, and it was, wow, it's amazing. I mean, I just I just I was amazed at everything much more than when I had read it the first time. So, so. like really feeling the strangeness of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. and how it couldn't have happened unless you know unless it really did happen. I mean, it, it couldn't have been made up. There were just too many kind of crazy things in it, kind of normal things, things you would have left out if you were trying to make it up. Right, and things that you would have changed had you been making it up. Yeah, so yeah, like yeah. The, um, the formative years of Jesus, that um, that there would have been some precocity, yeah. some, um, something there that, um, that, would have, uh, that would have been part of the story. Right? Yeah. Anyway, when I was uh, reading it, I mean, uh, I worked at MedLife. We used to have Metropolitan Life. We used to have debates about religion. I was very, the actuary field was very Jewish. And uh, so there was always arguments, Catholics, and some of the Catholics weren't practicing, and da 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 da. But anyway, uh, the, the book got me excited to talk about things, and then uh, so I went to the bookstore to learn more, you know, get more, and I found Orthodoxy, which you know I just reread Everlasting Man for this podcast, and uh, I can't tell tell the two books apart almost. There's a lot of that that are together, but Orthodoxy was. The other one that blew me away, especially the chapter Ethics of Elfland. And then, you know, I, then I bought Thomas Aquinas, St. Francis of Assisi. I remember the 4th of July weekend going to Strand's Bookstore in New York and finding Heretics and Macy Ward's biography of Chesterton. I gave the woman that behind, like, my last change. 
And she said, uh, what are you going to do for dinner? And I said, this will be my food. Oh, and nice. She, <laughs> and it was. I read it. I read read it through. I was, I was addicted. Anyway, I had I'd read a lot of Chesterton fast. I also started picking up C.S. Lewis at that time. Ah. So I was kind of getting into religion. It was really, I mean, uh, really making an intellectual leap into religion at the time. And Chesterton just confirmed to me how true the Catholic faith was in his book. One of the lines near the beginning, as I remember reading, was, as for the general view that the church was discredited by the war, they might as well say that the ark was discredited by the flood. When the world goes wrong, it proves rather that the church is right. The church is justified not because her children do not sin, but because they do. I mean, that's always a complaint. You know, you got a priest, he's a sinner. You got a bishop who's sin with sinners. You know, and that doesn't prove that the church is false. Uh, just we're weak. There's original sin. I remember in Orthodoxy talked about the one thing we can really prove about the church is original sin. I remember asking my brother Joe about that. What, what does he really mean? He goes, just look in the mirror. You'll know what he means. <laughs> and so he was right. So anyway, the, the book also just gave me a real confidence in my faith mm -hmm. because of the way um, he spoke about it. Yeah. I mean, by the time we get to the end in the second half of um, chapter five, which is the one about... The, um, the escape from paganism. Yeah. By the time we're at the end of that chapter, um, there, as you can see from my, my copy, there's like, there's annotation everywhere. Um, and it's, I mean, by the end, it's just, it's so compelling, right? Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, you have, by the end, you, um, and he's also tying back in the image of, um, of the keys and the creed um, and the way that um, that, that operates and, um, and thinking about like what, what, how religion differs from, both philosophy and mythology. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know, for me it was revelatory that um, the Greeks, and maybe this is obvious to other people, so I'm possibly um, anticipatorily embarrassed, yeah. but, the, um, but that, that the Greeks didn't, didn't worship those gods in the, same, in the same way that we think about worship. Uh, and that the, the Roman gods are, um, are, they give us a calendar, they give us um, you know, a sense of, um, of what, of sacrifice, I guess. But, um, but worship in the way that we think of worship is not present in, you know, in, those, um, in, in that kind of paganism. Mm -hmm. He talks about God being too big, maybe, not, not small things put together until you get to the greatest God. It might be that God was too big, the idea of God, mm -hmm. and you break it down into smaller gods. The pagans did like that. I thought that was interesting. The com com uh, comparing religions was something that I had, you know, I'd seen the... The stacks he talked about, you got the, you know, Catholic, Protestant, Islam, Buddha, Buddhism, so on. And they always have the founder and, and things like that. But then when he says, you know, this found, the founder of the Catholic religion, striking difference was he claimed he was God. None of the others did. Muhammad never claimed he was God. He was a prophet. You know, Buddha never claimed he was God. Joseph Smith never claimed he was God. I mean, the only religion in which the founder claimed he was God is the Catholic religion. I mean, that exists. There's other people who have claimed that they're <laughs> right. God, but they've, they've fallen quickly. Right, and Chesterton points those people out, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of like there's the lunatic uh, yeah. sort of aspect, and then there are various other sort of um, aspects yeah. to thinking about that. And if, you, if you're saying you're God, you're crazy, basically. I mean, C.S. Lewis says that. It's, you know, it's either he was 
a hoax, a big liar, or he was crazy, or he was who he said he was. Right. And, then, and that, that's what Chesterton basically says in this. I don't know, it just made me think of things like that. I had never read that in another book. I mean, even In Soft Garments by Ronald Knox was kind of just solid, eight pages of meditation, you know, on each truth of the faith, but mm -hmm. not with the the bombs going off and the fireworks that Chesterton did. Right. Right. And then, uh, and he does it also, you know, he does it in so many ways. He does it through art. He does it through history. Uh, like, uh, you know, I won the history award in high school for the top history student. But after reading this book, I said, I don't know any history. I really don't know any history. And so I, is that you didn't understand, like, the Chestertonian lens? Or or you there, there, you felt like there were whole... Um, Epochs that you didn't that you just didn't, didn't know about. about. Like yeah. I didn't know much about Hannibal or the mm -hmm. Punic Wars or things like that. Right. So what did I do? I started reading about Hannibal and the Punic Wars. You know, I right. read more Aristotle, I, more Aquinas. I mean, he just led me to so many things, mm -hmm. and that's from this book. Yeah, I mean, I think people downplay Carthage because mm -hmm. Carthage is you know, on the way to Rome. Yeah, um, and so I think that that's something that's not emphasized. But then um, Chesterton's talking about. The, um, the way that the Romans you know, didn't stop fighting um, and, you know, and maintained um, in order to create a different culture, ultimately. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that's, I mean, maybe we don't pay attention to culture in the same reason we don't pay attention to like, um, I mean, some of Mycenae, because it's, mm -hmm. um, it's about shipping and mm -hmm. it's about, mm -hmm. um, it's about, you know, it's about commerce and sort of material life. Um, as opposed to um, a, a richer kind of life. I mean, Chesterton says that, you know, people aren't really interested in, I mean, the sort of materialist views of history um, don't hold up because it's not that people are interested in livelihood, it's that they're interested in life. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that difference, and it maybe accounts for some of that, for like why it's not taught and why, you know, we go straight from, uh, we go straight to, to Rome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he talks about Carthage being the worst of paganism and then Rome being the best, but right. it was getting old. Like you had said, uh, it's not tired for, uh, tired of, just tired of life, actually, at some point. I mean, the Rome was strong and good, and they they got tired or something. Well, <laughs> so. right. Well, the idea that the story of Good Friday is about um, the 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 best culture falling, mm -hmm. right? It's about the best in people um, being turned over. And, uh, and so that is, um, and that's why it's tragic, um, as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, something that you can, something that just feels like it's the inevitable outcome of badness, mm -hmm. right? Um, so that, that sort of um, revelatory quality or um, sort of revolutionary quality is, is how that operates. Yeah, that was, uh, I remember vividly this uh, thing right here, when Christ died, they took the body down from the cross, and one of the few rich men among the first Christians obtained permission to bury it in a rock tomb in his garden. The Romans setting a military guard lest there should be some riot and attempt to recover the body. There was once, there was once more natural symbolism in these natural proceedings. It was well that the tomb should be sealed with all the secrecy of ancient Eastern sepulture, sepulture and guided by the authority of the Caesars. For in that second cavern, the whole of the great and glorious humanity, which we call antiquity, was gathered up and covered over. And in that place, it was buried. It was the end of a very great thing called human history, the history that was merely human. 
The mythologies and philosophies were buried there, the gods and the heroes and the sages. And the great Roman phrase, they had lived, but as they could only live, so they could only die, and they were dead. On the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder, but even they hardly realized that the world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth. And in a semblance of the garden, God walked again in the garden in the cool, not of the evening, but the dawn. Oh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a whole new world. I mean, the A.D. and the B.C., you have one person who have separated the world by his birth. It's changed things. So I'm just, and the know. movement from um, right from the the old dying and the new coming you know, up right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an, it's another way of looking at at Easter that um, that we we understand it like it it's the story we know, but it's also. Um, given new life, and I think that's I think that's what makes Chesterton special, right? Mm -hmm. That he's able to kind of defamiliarize enough that when we see um, that we see things that we know, we see them more truly because like all the cliche is burned off, mm -hmm. um, all the platitudes are burned off, um, and so it's uh, it's able to be we're able to see it again. It's able to be fresh. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask you about was um, the way that you feel that um, Chesterton resonates today with um, contemporary problems and issues or with even um, sort of currents within the Catholic Church? Yeah, I belong to the American Chesterton Society, Society and they have an annual conference, three-day conference. It's actually become sort of a religious movement. There's something, they're, they're somehow an official part of the church. Like at this last uh, time I went in, in uh, Kansas City, uh, they had the mass every day, they said the rosary every day, they had time for prayer. And it was part of their sort of apostolate. Not only that, talking about Chesterton and stuff like that. And, and you know, uh, the American Chesterton Society has started maybe 35 schools, 40 schools. Some all, you know, Canada. I think they started one in Iran. Anyway, they, uh, they know that Chesterton is, is the right thinker for the job. We always ask, what would Chesterton say? What would he said about COVID? what would he said about COVID? What would he have said about uh -huh. the shutdown? What would he yeah. have said? Well, as I our mean, world becomes more absurd, yeah, right? Yeah, we yeah. look for like fresh insight from people we trust, yeah, right? Yeah. And people who have like really interesting, um, again, um, a, a kind of um, very clever, tight uh, way of expressing and um, and a way of understanding things that's very astute and acute, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, he also, also said a dead thing goes with the stream, only a live thing goes against the stream. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have to be. We have to be alive. We have to go against the stream. Last year, when Brookwood and Avalon opened up in September, I mean, a lot of people looked at us like, you know, that's very dangerous and stuff like that. But we took all the right precautions. We spread out. We got more classrooms. We did everything we were supposed to do. But it was, it was like... The, we're fighting though. This is ridiculous. Let's let's live life. Right. And uh, I know I was proud of, of our teachers and our students at the end of the year. There was a you can. It's a live thing. These schools are live things. And I think you know a lot of us have Chesterton in us, and he kind of imbues us with the liveliness. I know he does me. Yeah, I mean, it's thinking um, again. It's 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 rather than following you know what people do. It's um, it's thinking through what's possible 
and um, and having hope, right? I mean, a, a whole lot of this book is about um, turning away from a, a kind of pessimism that he finds either in some religions and in some some sort of cultural structures. Asia, um, the, <laughs> yeah, the, the circle, uh, uh, the wheel. And he talks about the snake eating its tail. He does that in orthodoxy also. Whereas the cross is perpendicular and shoots out in all directions, right. it's sharp and defined. Yeah. The same thing when he talks about, uh, you know, uh, the heretics section, that yeah. chapter, he talks about the key uh -huh. being, you know, a, a, a shape, a solid shape. If it loses its shape, it, do, it, it doesn't work, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And it's, he thinks it's a great symbol of the church because it is, it's just... But it's the right shape. It opened the door. It was the thing that opened the world. And it just, I don't know, just, I had never thought of anything like that. Right. Well, I mean, they're sort of given symbols, right? We yeah, see them. Yeah, we see yeah. the keys. Like, we see them in Dante. We see them, you know, they're in, uh, and they show up in, um, in um, they show up in the Bible. They show up in, you know, allegorical texts. They show up in um, literary texts across time. And I think they kind of lose their, their freshness. And mm -hmm. so to actually look at the key and see what does the key do, and is this an apt symbol, um, is something that Chesterton does with more force than, yeah. uh, than we might be prepared for. Even that, even that chapter he talks about uh, building the church on this rock, Peter, you know, who yeah. says, you know, it said, you know, the, the Christ, a lot of his things were, you know, m many years, you know, many centuries later that, that yeah, he's right, because the, the papacy has been a rock for the church, all these, right. you know, they, they've had their, times like when St. Peter had his times, but uh, it's it's something that's proved true when he, you know, right. amazingly. And um, while other things have um, have fallen away, so mm -hmm. there's a, you can, um, I don't know if you can tell it's a heresy by its lack of staying power, but it seems that that's part of it, mm -hmm. um, that um, it can be a, a kind of fad in one direction. Um, and then it, it dies away, or um, it's too dependent on its um, surrounding culture, and so it dies away. Um, I know that um, that Chesterton talks a lot about how Christianity is um, is. I mean, I, these are my words: elastic and portable. But um, but how it's not dependent on a particular um, culture or cultural setup. It's not dependent on Rome, yeah. um, and how it's in that way um, applicable to other circumstances. And how to that, um, while a lot of what we see is applicable to our own time, um, what Jesus was saying in his time was often you know, way out of line with um, the cultural norms. Um, and that might be, I mean, that might be a little bit inspirational to Chesterton, right, mm -hmm. to say the truth no matter what the context is. Uh, but, um, and he talks about marriage. Um, yeah, Islam. Talked, Polygamy, how you know the Muhammad allowed four wives, and he said, if he was in England at that time, I don't think he would have allowed four wives. Right. That was part of their culture, to have that polygamy, and then and Christ, you know, says no. In the beginning, in the beginning, man and woman become one, and you can't divorce and things like that. And he said, and he says something like, uh, and to see how uh, how it wasn't really looked at it very well look at the end of the story i mean christ is crucified for saying things that it wasn't he wasn't just going with the social norm he was going against the social norm he did he did it also with mary and martha right and, and uh right that mary because at that time you know the, the the woman wouldn't sit in the temple listening to the rabbi they were doing other things it was always the men but then when mary comes and honors jesus 
and she's chosen the better part. Right. Uh, just, just amazing. One thing after another. Boom, 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 boom. Right, and through that section in particular. Yeah, so yeah. You have the, that division into, um, I guess, contemplative and active life. Yeah, um, that's right. And then you have, you know, as you go through there, um, it's it's one thing after another. Yeah, the meek will inherit the earth. Well, you know, the monks, the Benedictine monks, I mean, they converted Europe. Right. You know, right. and Ireland and things like that. It just... You know, I went to public high school and then I went to Harvard where you're not going to learn much about the Catholic faith. So this was my real, you know, teach, learning the Catholic faith deeper. I mean, in soft garments helped me a lot. Yeah. And other things I read and my parents were pretty devout Catholics. and But uh, this book really helped. I think, too, about the way of viewing God. Um, I mean, again, I'm still in that Escape from Paganism chapter where I think I, I'm going to, like, pitch my tent and live <laughs> but this um this idea of god as um as magnanimous as um as sort of the just king um so like um, he says a liberal and popular prince um not like a despot um and um and the idea too of the king fighting with the people of course i thought of henry v mm-hmm. um, because you've trained me to think of henry v <laughs> in this situation and um but but that idea of the you know the king the king fighting with the soldiers um and um and the, that, that leads you to a place where um, you have the, the Catholic believing that his or her prayers make a difference. Um, that idea of, um, the, um, this, this part is also about the um, suffragium, the, the, the suffrage, that, um, that, that you get, that your prayer makes a difference, um, that you live like a free citizen. Um, the dead in purgatory were said to have um, the suffrages of the living, and in this sense, a sort of right of petition to the supreme ruler. The way we may, um, the way, sorry, we may truly say that the whole of the communion of saints, as well as the whole of the church militant, is founded on universal suffrage. Um, but that idea um, helps us to understand, helps me to understand anyway, about um, the nature of freedom, and um, and sort of the the relationship of the self to God in a way that, I mean, using sort of a metaphorical structure that I hadn't particularly thought of. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good chapter, but, you know, uh, by this time I was just like, <laughs> everything was great. You know, I, I just, that's near the end of the book, but it's, uh, you know, the, the thing about the faith, let me just, uh, one other thing, because he really, not one other thing, but, this just grabbed me when I read this. And this is the light that the Catholic creed is Catholic and that nothing else is Catholic. The philosophy of the church is universal. Universal. The philosophy of the philosophers was not universal. Had Plato and Pythagoras and Aristotle stood for an instant in the light that came out of that little cave, they would have known that their own light was not universal. It is far from certain, indeed, that they did not know it already. Philosophy also, like mythology, had very much the air of a search. It is a realization of this truth that gives its traditional majesty and mystery to the figures of the three kings, the discovery that religion is broader than philosophy and that this is the broadest of religions contained within this narrow space. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> that's what I keep saying, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of where we, is that exactly. She was like, check, like, <laughs> absolutely, right? Yeah. Uh, but I mean, but that idea too of um, of religion as um, as occupying a space that's different from mythology and different from philosophy, and that they're both searches. Mm-hmm. Um, and then talking about the um, how the story of man is a story, 
um, and um, and how that works too. And I, I I thought actually I thought of you when I um, when I read that part the idea about the um, the person as the agent the hero of his own story and um, how the um, how the end is different from the beginning and how and how it's a real story it has a real shape um, it it feels like pilgrimage right it feels <laughs> like um, like like an adventure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know when uh, Dale Olquist gave a talk, he's, head of, he's the president of the American Chesterton Society, and he actually converted to Catholicism after reading The Everlasting Man. He oh, wow. read it on his honeymoon, yeah. which is, must have been some kind of honeymoon. I don't know, but uh, um, it, just, it just changed his life. And So anyway, but he, uh, what was I going to say? I was gonna, oh, lost my train of thought. Why don't you? We'll fix it. Okay. Yeah. But maybe that's a good place to end, actually. Okay. Uh, thinking about um, the the book itself as um, as having kind of a life changing power. C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis read it when he was sick in the hospital, and he said, "An atheist should be careful about the what they read if they want to remain an atheist." So <laughs> he had he had uh, the Chesterton Review once had a list of all the Chesterton books that C.S. Lewis had in his. Uh-huh. Library. And he had like thirty-five books by Chesterton. Yeah, and I'm sure the Chesterton Society has tracked this, but I, oh, yeah. I would be interested to know, like, what other major thinkers how um, can we can trace back to um, to Chesterton, especially poised as he was, like in the twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have like you know thirty years later, here's this further resurgence, um, and and so thinking about how how that lineage works, mm-hmm. and um, and I wonder too if I mean. Chesterton talks about, um, you know, some thinkers who, and some you know, theologians who influenced him, but I wonder, like, if you go to the theological ancestors of Chesterton, sort of where you land there, too, as well, do you have to go all the way back to, like, Aquinas, uh, or if there are um, immediate, I guess the Oxford movement, right, if there are um, sort of immediate predecessors that Oxford. would have been... But he had read Aquinas, you know, he wrote uh, the great book on Thomas Aquinas also, so... Mm-hmm. And he read everything. He was a, a book critic for a while, and I think he read about 3,000 books a year wow. while he was doing that. And he was a voracious reader, and he could read and remember almost everything. Even in some of his books, he recites, like Browning, his book on Robert Browning, he recites some of his poetry. He gets a few words wrong. He didn't actually find the actual copy of the poem, but he, was, he would, he would you know... He, lack, he lack pro- of internet. Yeah, he probably thought he was better than the, than the poem. No, he wasn't. He was too <laughs> humble of a guy. I know what I was going to say about Dale Alquist is that he, uh, when he gives a talk, he basically just quotes Chesterton because he can't say things better than Chesterton. Right. So, right. And, uh, and it's kind of fun listening to him. He try to think which book it came from. And uh-huh. Anyway, that's what Chestertonians do at these conferences. That came from what's wrong with the world. <laughs> that came from heretics. That came from orthodoxy. There's a long tradition of that, though. I mean, with, yeah. like, read the read the Confessions, and yeah. um, you have Augustine quote, you know, with like, woven in. Like it's so internalized. He's you know, scripture is woven into the text. Yeah. And I think that's pretty common, right? It's, it's fun to have the the Chestertonians weaving their Chesterton into what they have to say. Yeah. I guess maybe the last thing to say. You ready to say the last thing? Go ahead. That the last thing to say might be. Um, that here we are recording on October 6th. Um, tomorrow is at um, Brookwood and at Avalon for at least half the day, right? The, um, the festival for um, Our Lady of the Rosary, which we know is very important to Chesterton. 
and um, with, uh, with his poem Lepanto, which will be part of our celebrations. Um, yeah. I don't know, do you want to add anything about that? Well, I mean, that was, you know, Chesterton did turn me to poetry. I mean, the first poem I remember memorizing was The Donkey. That's the first poem nice. I ever memorized. Nice. And then I started memorizing, and then I heard someone recite Lepanto, J.J. Malloy of the Christopher Dawson Society. And cool. I, and I went home to try to imitate his voice. He did a <laughs> Don John of Austria is going to the war. But anyway, I did memorize the poem. And, it's, and, and then I started looking at the history of that time. So Chesterton not only gave me a lot, he led me to look at other yeah, things. For sure. Poems. And so, that's what, that's what and good writing does, yeah. right? It, like, and that's the same with the teacher. You don't want just, you know, you were doing one year of U.S. history. You should be reading biographies and right. other books on history. Right. You get the bibliography. Yeah, yeah. And so you get you get Julie Wilson, but then you also get the bibliography for, um, for you know, what, what you should do next. In poetry class, um, I was helping the house captains make sure that they could say all the words to the Lepanto poem. And... Um, as we were, and today was the day that we we're going to talk about um, sound because our, the students are trying to write in free verse for the first time, and so oh. they're trying to say what are the things other than rhyme and meter that hold a poem together. So we're talking about sound, and uh, and so there we were, you know, reading along um, and enjoying the um, the the strong alliteration and yeah. the, um, the anapests and the you know the whole thing. Going Dim on. drums throbbing in the hills, half heard. You can hear the drums in the distance. You know, scare the. But anyway, uh, <laughs> can I just read that? The, the book ends. Yeah, do it. It's just beautiful. Just one paragraph. And I remember closing the book like, wow, can't wait to read this again so I can understand it better. But it has endured for nearly 2,000 years, he's talking about the church, and the world within it has been more lucid, more level-headed, more reasonable in its hopes, more healthy in its instincts, more humorous and cheerful in the face of fate and death than all the world outside. For it was the soul of Christendom that came forth from the incredible Christ, and the soul of it was common sense. Though we dared not look on his face, we could look on his fruits, and by his fruits we should know him. The fruits are solid, and the fruitfulness is much more than a metaphor. And nowhere in the sad world are boys happier in apple trees, or men in more equal chorus singing as they tread the vine, than under the fixed flash of this instant and intolerant Enlightenment, the lightning made eternal as the light. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rich, for right. appearing on the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, and I think that you'll inspire people to read The Everlasting Man and, um, and other works by Chesterton and other works in general. You know, it's other things that lead us um, into the faith in deeper and richer ways. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brookwood Life of the Mind podcast. Our producer is Quentin Walsh. Our theme music is by Fabian Tell. Ideas expressed here are the participants' own.